0: Hello, and welcome to American History Remix. If you're a regular listener, you will notice that this is a different format. That's because this is a special Q&A episode. I am Will Schneider, and I am joined by Lindsay Smith on Zoom. Lindsay, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, Will. How are you today?
0: I'm doing pretty good. So I am in Oregon, and uh, Lindsay is somewhere. Where are you, Lindsay?
1: I am somewhere in California.
0: Nice. So what are we doing today?
1: We just released volume one covering topics on colonial American history through the revolution. So we asked for questions on Instagram and Twitter. The links to those are on our website, AmericanHistoryRemix.com. And a listener also emailed a question to AmericanHistoryRemix at gmail.com. We really appreciate the response we received for this Q&A episode, so we plan on doing more in the future. We don't know how often we will do these kinds of special episodes, but listeners can follow us on our socials for future prompts or go ahead and email us with their questions. So what kind of questions did we get, Will?
0: We got a variety of questions. The majority were actually about us and about this project, wondering who we are, what we're doing, what are our goals for this project. There were also some questions, uh, general questions about what historians do and how the craft of history works. And we got some questions uh, related to specific topics we talked about in volume one, as well as a few leading into volume two. So that'll kind of be the order um, We'll address these questions in. So what we're going to do is we're just going to take turns uh, asking each other these questions. We'll use it as a jumping off place for a conversation. Unlike other episodes, this is clearly not scripted. We are just having a conversation um, through Zoom.
1: Through Zoom. So there may be some background noise. We'll do our best to eliminate what we can, though.
0: Lindsay's trying to keep all of her cats quiet. I'm trying to keep my dog quiet. (laughs) <laughs> we'll see how it goes.
1: So how many people are on your team and what are your backgrounds? Jeff asked us this question.
0: Yes. Uh, thank you for your question, Jeff. There are essentially two people on the team, um, two historians on the team. We have some help, obviously, with uh, audio editing and marketing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's me and Lindsay. And we met at uh, Portland State um, in their grad program, we were both in the same cohort when we were getting master's degrees in history. So what did you study, Lindsay?
1: At Portland State, uh, I received my master's in environmental history and public history. So those were my two focus points. Um, Mostly urban environmental history, if I would, uh, was what I studied. And in general, how to approach and interact with the public?
0: Do you want to uh, define public history? I don't, I'm not sure that's a term most people know.
1: Um, off the cuff, public history
0: <laughs> is this a loaded question?
1: <laughs> it is a loaded question, and that's a good. It's a great question to ask, and I get asked it often because I mean, when you tell somebody you have your degree in public history, what they're like, what the heck does that even mean? Right. Um. So off the cuff, I would say uh, a very general definition of public history is anything um, relating to bringing history to the general public. So it's usually through mediums that multiple groups of people, regardless of their background, have access to. So we're talking museums. or historical sites, or um, podcasts, uh, publication publications that are that are available to the public, like podcasts. Mm-hmm. So those are examples. But it's essentially we we work. Uh, public historians are trained exactly the same way as academic historians, and we use the same historical method, um, which we might talk about a little bit later mm-hmm. on. But um, we employ the same methods. We use the same evidence but we tell history in a different way. And it depends on our how, who we're trying to reach and, and how um, much interaction we want from the public on how we tell those histories. But the main idea is that you don't have to be a professional historian to learn or um, interact with history. You can public historians just kind of figure out ways to bring that more knowledge to the general public kind of taking history out of the uh, archives and the the ivory tower and bringing it to the public mm-hmm. and that and i would probably get some <laughs> i'll probably get some um negative response to my response oh, there really? but I, I will I but I find for the
0: record I put Lindsay on the spot that wasn't in the script.
1: Yeah. Or script yeah, being no, bullet points
0: that, not an actual script. We,
1: we don't have a script. We 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 did kind of put some talking points in um before we started mm-hmm. our our Q&A episode, but um defining public history is difficult to do and that's that is a good thing I think that it gets people more interested in trying to uh learn on their own Mm -hmm. you know what does that what does it even mean to have different types of histories you know like what is an environmental historian versus an intellectual historian what does that even mean those are great questions to ask and we hope that our audience asks that right and yeah so what did you study will
0: i studied the social and intellectual history of the united states uh with a few areas of focus one of them being the american west uh also race relations Uh, music history, and religious history. Um, The reason I have so many focuses is because I thought I was going to write my master's thesis about one thing, and then I switched, and there was a side project that became a master's thesis. So I have a number of areas that I focused in. Um, But yeah, that's my my background. People often ask what social and intellectual history is as well, and that's um, perhaps a little easier to define than public history, but generally... I would say it's uh, history that focuses on culture and ideas rather than focusing on, like, politics or war. Um, Though, of course, there's overlap. There's both. Um, But it's a matter of emphasis. And so I'm emphasizing culture. I emphasized ideas. And that's where things, uh, interests of mine like race and music and religion come in because they're not generally uh, political topics. So our next question, also from Jeff. Jeff has sent in a number of questions. He says, uh, what's the general process to make an episode and how long does each step take? Lindsay, how long does it take to do these?
1: Well, let me just start by saying that um, Will and I started discussing our plans to make a podcast, or hey, do you want to make a podcast, two years ago?
0: Yeah, it's been a long time.
1: Okay. And... But through that time, we've worked out the concept, we've um, asked our questions like what, what kind of topics are we going to cover? what you know, what is this thing? So it's it the voice take...
0: of the project, all, all of that.
1: Exactly. So that mm-hmm. took quite some time. Now the actual process for an episode um, after we've chosen the topic uh, is generally speaking, we research it, we write it, Uh, The script is edited. Repeatedly edited. Repeatedly, yes. And then it's recorded. We do a pre-edit of the audio, which we then send that to, we had a professional edit our audio and add in the music that we selected and the intro and outros that we recorded. Mm -hmm. Um, The transcripts are then finalized so that they can be put on the website Um, We do have full episode transcripts transcripts on our website with uh, citations and our sources because we wanted to keep this project, like, we wanted to keep the integrity of the project by following our education, which is the historical method. And then part of that includes citation and source, um, you know, keeping our sources. So we did that. And we provide that for each episode. Um, then the transcripts and the audio are uploaded to the website and our podcast hosting site. Then the releases are scheduled. The podcast is released. And we look for follow-up. And there's a bunch of other stuff that goes on in yeah. there. And that's, that's, that's like the general process. Um,
0: I would say that's a long, that's a lot of steps you just listed. And that is was yeah. uh, a very condensed version. Um, yes the
1: and yes and each one of those steps it really just depends on the episode yeah. how much background do we have on the subject do we really need to start from scratch learning uh this topic or do we have a history having learned it before or researched it before um and over the course of the last two years we have changed our methods like Pretty
0: significantly, as far as
1: like, as far as who does what has changed quite a bit. So we got we have it to a very good place now, which allows us to work remotely with one another. Mm-hmm. We have you know, so we can be a thousand miles apart and still be able to produce um, these episodes based on we play to each other's strengths. Yeah, and. Um, I guess we really, should say originally, yeah. if I
0: can p- interrupt slightly originally, we yeah, were um, the idea was that we would take turns hosting um, that I would write a script and then I would like have you edit it and then I would re- record it and then you would write a script or whatever order and I would edit it and you would record it and by having each script go through the others editing process there would kind of be a common voice but you would host your episodes and I would host my episodes and we could kind of merge our different, um, historical interests. Uh, but we found that process didn't work. It, uh, didn't play to our strengths. And so, uh, kind of by accident, I became the host. <laughs> this is why yeah. you hear my voice more. <laughs> that wasn't the original plan. Um, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and they're, originally, they're going to be much shorter episodes. And so when we say it, like the, the podcast is two years old, well, I mean, the first year, I would say, on and off, kind of sporadically working on it, uh, we were working through, well, what, what do we even do? Who does what role? I mean, it kind of took a, probably a year before we realized, okay, you are a much, much stronger editor than I am. Um, and I have more experience recording, so it, it just made sense. If, if I can write scripts and you can edit them and I can host them, we're playing to each other's strengths. Rather than making me edit your scripts, um, which will make your scripts weaker because I'm not as strong as an editor, and so we realized we could kind of rearrange the roles, and that's why you all get to listen to me talk all the time and only hear Lindsay per- uh, periodically.
1: Right, but in a very sen- a real sense, you're hearing me all the time yeah, exactly. because <laughs> we we um, we really learned how to collaborate Mm -hmm. on a project. And that's a huge part of public history too, if you want to uh, get into it, but Will, this is a public history project, Mm -hmm. a podcast is a public history podcast project. And um, so Will, I would say you learned quite a bit about what does that, what does being a public historian mean just by working on this project? Um, And that comes down to how do we write our scripts? Mm -hmm. Um, what kind of voice are we using? And, uh, cause we want it to be fun and interesting, but information packed, right? you know? So, um, in general, now we have it set up to where I take on the bulk of the research and at least initially, and not for every episode, but for most. And, um, Will does the writing because it's, his voice that comes across. And he's a much stronger writer too than I am. But I am uh I do take pride in being able to butcher um drafts totally. to get him no you to a good place. I feel like I produce <laughs>
0: a stronger first draft than you do. Um if we're mm-hmm. if we're yeah. just comparing our writing styles, but your editing is so mm-hmm. much stronger than mine. If I write a draft and it's generally stronger than your first drafts and then you edit it it just creates a stronger product in general than if it was your draft being edited by me. Um, mm-hmm. and so, and you're yeah. the main researcher so. as well. Um, so you can provide a lot of information and kind of help formulate where we want to go with the topic and then I'll write it. And then you completely tear it apart. Um, which is actually really fun for me because it makes the writing better. Um, uh, like you cannot hurt my feelings cause I'm like, Oh, this is great. This is making the project better. Um, and that's where your, uh, your strength as an editor really comes through. If people could see <laughs> the notes you give me back on my drafts, uh, they're pretty, they're pretty brutal. And I,
1: yeah. But I love doing yeah. that too. It, it's, it's great having somebody who understands that I am not attacking you as a person. Right. I, I just like, want this. Well, this is not so how I you want, use a semicolon.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. If I can get into capitalization. <laughs> oh yeah. But no. <laughs> but no, I think like I'm, as I'm editing my thought, I'm thinking as close to a listener as I can imagine. Somebody who has no idea about anything in this topic, can they hear this and get something out of it? Or are they asking questions that we're not answering? And
0: that's a great way, um, or I guess I get a great uh, benefit of having different backgrounds in history, is I can be writing about something that I have some knowledge about and realize I'm not laying a foundation um, that, it, or I'm coming to it with knowledge that a, uh, a general audience doesn't have. And you can look at it and be like, you didn't define this term. You didn't explain this enough. Um, mm-hmm. And it forces me to strengthen the writing essentially, because I'm, if I'm familiar with a topic and you're not, you can catch that and vice versa.
1: And it's even more fun when we both approach a topic that we don't have a background
0: uh-huh. in. which <laughs> we do sometimes. <laughs>
1: Which we do, which is great, as we both learn uh-huh. something. And, and we are always learning something, even if we do have a background in it.
0: I guess this leads to our uh, our next question, actually. This is a good segue. Uh, Jeff also asks, how do you decide what to talk about and what to leave out? Personal interests, perceived historical importance, novelty of the information?
1: I'd say it probably starts with personal interests mm-hmm. um, for both of us. Uh, we're curi- curious about a topic or we were really excited the first time we learned about a topic. Right. And uh, usually we learned about stuff as we were in our college education. So we feel like maybe these subjects were missed opportunities in public education and we wanted to or at least in our personal public education. And hmm. so we wanted to, when we first learned about him, we were so crazed, it was like, this is why, why doesn't everybody know about yeah. this? And that, that plays into a lot of our episodes and also interest that we gained as we got older as historians or, and more involved in our own interests in general. Like, So personal interest is a big deal so is um, our perceived lack of understanding among the public when it comes to certain topics or at least certain interpretations or viewpoints. You know, and yeah, go ahead.
0: So like uh, like I said, I would echo a few things you said. Uh, For me, sometimes it's I read a book and I'm just blown away by the book and I go, how did I ever not know this how do people not know this? And I want to like tell everybody to go read these books. Um, but often they're intimidated by a 600 page history book. Um, and so I say, screw it. I'm going to start a podcast and I'm going to talk about these books <laughs> and then I'm going mm, to exactly. put them on the website. All right. If you're not going to go read it, we're going to talk about it and you're going to get some of the information from it. Um, that's, that's part, like there's a lot of motivations for the podcast. That's one of my motivations. Um, it's just yeah, to get people yeah, to engage with this material I've come across that's so, uh, that's just blown my mind, and I, f- I think it's worthwhile information that people should have. Um, yeah,
1: and for me, I think that, that you hit the, you, you used the correct term, engage, and for me, I, I, I really want people to ask questions about their past, or the past, and um, engage with it, and not be afraid of, or be intimidated by, I Mm -hmm. wouldn't say they're afraid of anything. i say for the most part, maybe intimidated by um, research or reading a book or like trying to understand like, you know, is this book even like who wrote this? What were they talking about? Why, who gives them the right to tell me this is what happened (laughs) in the past, you know? and those are really good questions to ask and i think for, for for me i want people to engage in the in the topics and find themselves in it if not themselves then an interest another interest and they could just realize that yeah, there's a lot more going on in american history than maybe they were taught at different levels of education and You know, you you can't remember everything you learned in school anyway, but um, if something excites you and gets you interested in researching more, I think that is a huge motivator for me.
0: Yeah, I think uh, for me, sometimes I think about what can I do to introduce a topic and leave people with more questions, leave people wanting more, um, Mm -hmm. rather than presenting like, this is the totality of the information about... I don't know, the seven years war or something like that, or puritanism. Um, I'm really yeah, like, we let me, are
1: not the, yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to those uh, topics. Um, I like to like present the information. Um, and I think what can inspire people to go want to learn more about history? Um, cause obviously our podcast can't cover every single thing in American history. Uh, that's not our intent by any means. Um, but if we can show people that there's there is more to learn, um, that's uh, that's a great uh, outcome for the project. And so sometimes that'll kind of motivate um, topics or how we'll approach topics specifically.
1: I, I would say w- one more thing to mention is we grew up in different regions of the United States, mm-hmm. so we we have different interests based on. And then different experiences with um, history classes and um, historical sites and and you know what it, we we have different questions we ask. Mm. We have different um, topics that we either are excited about or we avoid altogether. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's it's good mixing, yeah,
0: right when I was an undergraduate studying history, my specialty was ancient history. Um, But I kind of grew to love U.S. history when I personally realized how much more there was to it um, and realized there's so much more beyond war. I I remember uh, watching... Uh, A a course through Yale, Yale has open courses, they have a website with Yale open courses, you can watch the lectures of these courses and these teachers um, on a variety of subjects, and you can even like download the syllabus and see what they're reading. Um, Obviously, you don't get credit, but you can just kind of observe what those courses are like. Um, And for some reason, I have you done it
1: a few too yeah yeah I have I really I They're really great. Enjoy it. <laughs> I, uh, I watched
0: the Civil War one with a historian named David Blight and it blew my mind because I I thought the Civil War was so boring I honestly don't know why I started watching it but I for some reason did and I think more than anything that made me want to be an American historian because there was so much more than just battles and politics so that's there but those battles and politics meant so much more when I realized There's other sources you can look at. There's other uh, voices in the American Civil War and obviously the lead-up and Reconstruction afterwards as well. Um, So I kind of became an American historian almost by accident.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like you know it's it's a similar. I think maybe we were bored by history because we were hearing history told in a way that was fact based if you will. So like dates, Mm -hmm. names, and not a lot of context.
0: That's a good way to put it.
1: Um, We were bored by history of certain types, and now we're very fascinated by the same history. And it has a lot to do with approaching it from different angles, which is something we try to do here with the podcast. Um, So that being said, what's the long-term vision for the podcast, Will?
0: The long-term vision is... Uh, to cover all of U.S. history up to the present um, in four volumes. So volume one is obviously out now. We're working on volume two, which will go up until uh, through the Civil War. Um, volume three, we have a few ideas about. And then volume four is pretty uh, vague at this point. We have, so, we have some topic ideas, mm-hmm. but um, obviously the further out they are, the less planned they are. But we're in the process of writing and researching volume two. Um, but yeah, our, our goal is to go all the way through U.S. history and kind of continue the same process of taking familiar stories and adjusting our perspective or taking things that are generally overlooked and trying to shine some light on them. Um, is there anything you would add to that? That one's a little more straightforward. Uh,
1: no, that's a very straightforward question. Um we, we we might try special episodes. Mm-hmm. If we get enough listenership, we might be able to um, expand into uh, like Patreon-type situation, but we're not looking... That's way in the future. And what we would like to do is always constantly continue to develop the mm-hmm. podcast. So you'll hear it'll change. It'll get better, we hope. We're going to bring... Um, We hope to even expand into bringing other historians in, Mm -hmm. at least for like specific topics. There are things we are we're we have a lot of ideas and a lot of ambitions, and we understand uh, how lofty they are in a lot of ways. But in other like how practically like we can get there, and um, so we do appreciate our regular listeners and those who have subscribed to us because that gives us um, more like opportunity to reach larger audiences. So, and like following us on social media and stuff like that really helps out a lot too. So that will help us grow the podcast just for you being here. So we appreciate that. And we have lots more in store for you guys. So maybe it's a little bit of time between our volumes, but we don't want to leave you guys hanging. We'll give you something in between volumes as well. Like this. Like this.
0: The next question. How do you go about leaving your personal biases out of how you present information? That's a big question.
1: It's a big question, and you know, it's so wonderful that uh, Jeff asked that question as well. Um, that's a question that we explore in detail as history students. Um, we have books the, and yeah. books
0: and courses and courses written mm-hmm. on this subject
1: because mm-hmm. it's it's very important that we understand that the that the historian plays a role in the history. That they tell. Um, we all um, have our own backgrounds and perspectives and our own biases, and we just have to be honest with ourselves and with our listeners or re- readers if we're writing, that we um, we have our limitations and we have our biases. So usually what a, a usually a historian, will put that in their thesis statement or in their introduction yeah. to their book or something like that. What they'll do is they will explain, you know, what their limits were or what kind of evidence they used, um, what kind of evidence they couldn't get a hold of.
0: Or saying what they're choosing not to cover um, because of it's out of their scope or they're choosing to focus on a specific topic because other historians haven't spoken on it. Um, which all all reflects their perspective. So like historians will do essentially two things. One is they will admit their perspective. Um, And this is a bit weird, I think, for non-historians to realize. I think non-historians generally will think of history as simply a body of information and historians are just people who have mastered that material. Um, And don't recognize that historians have to interpret the material because there's so much, no history can cover everything. There is always new voices to uncover. These are things I've talked about in the uh, specific episodes. Um, So historians will admit their perspective, uh, but they also try to mitigate that by the historical method of citing sources, uh, footnotes of, uh, of how they engage with arguments with other historians um and a good historian will lay all of this out in the intro of their uh, of their work whether that's an article or a book um so there's a so history isn't a science it borrows from science in that sense that there's a method there's a peer review process but it is not uh definitive the way a, a science can be
1: yeah and i think the main thing there is in the word interpretation I- So whenever you're reading or listening to a history, understand that it is an interpretation of the past based on evidence and hopefully a lot of it. Um, So with us, we're not presenting you with our own original new research. We're presenting you with research that we found very interesting and we happen to agree with them. Or if we don't, we'd let you know. No, but so far, you know, we've at least on the main points of we've agreed enough to bring that to you. Um, I guess
0: I would caveat that a little bit because okay. when we're, um, let's say there's one, two or three really important books that I love on a subject and we want to bring it together. Um, I feel like in some ways we're synthesizing that and we're presenting it to an audience um, and so I'll, I'll at least take sub, take an argument from one author that I really like and another argument from another author I really like, even though they might disagree on different subjects um, or clash with each other. Um, it's, it's really interesting when you start reading history and historians will critique other historians' interpretation. Um, you'll see that when you really dig into the material, you'll see that pretty often. Um, and so in a sense, our voices do come out and our perspective does come out because we're synthesizing it and We have to make cuts. We have to make hard choices about what can we cover in this episode? What can't we cover in this episode? There are things sometimes we want to cover that we simply can't because of time restraints um, or we think will overwhelm the audience. Um, So our perspective certainly does come through in that. I think one thing to address, or I guess another thing to address is that our goal is always to understand the past, not necessarily to judge it with a few exceptions. Um, obviously, when I talk about slavery in the Atlantic trade episode, my perspective that slavery is bad comes through. That's my bias that I stand by. Um, obviously, other people in history have not had that bias. <laughs> but so there is, a, there is a sense in which I'm critiquing the past or saying this was morally wrong. Um, but there are other cases where, say, Puritanism, for example, I, I was trying to make no effort to judge the Puritans. celebrate or condemn them it was merely let's understand who they were um and I think more often we try to lean there but occasionally we come across things like slavery or I'm currently researching uh Cherokee removal like I can't those are abhorrent like that and I'm not gonna hide that I think they're abhorrent
1: um, and I think it's very obvious in our in our episodes when it is us speaking to you right. versus us Hopefully speaking that comes through, through a, a his, other historians, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but so that's an example of us, like, you're going to hear our bias yeah. and you're going to hear our perspective, especially when we're trying to like keep it in tr- the topic and the episode interesting and rolling and if, Wills talking about the Packers, no, that has nothing that that wasn't in the book that, that's, you know, that's true you know yeah, but anyway, I think yeah, I think we get we hold ourselves accountable, and a good historian holds themselves accountable mm-hmm. um, so.
0: Yeah. So I guess to, to kind of summarize that is there isn't one specific answer. Uh, it's a little bit case by case and historians will have different perspectives on this. And that's, I, I think, a little surprising to the general audience. Um, if that's not surprising to you, reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter and our email and let us know what mm-hmm. you think historians do. Um,
1: yeah, That. but be nice. Yeah, be nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if, if someone writes in with a legitimate question or a legitimate critique that's um, uh, civil, I'm, we're happy to engage with people who disagree. If, if people write in and they're just angry, vehement, like social media garbage, I'm, I don't have the energy to engage with it. Um, but
1: which so far yeah. we haven't had that, so we appreciate mm-hmm. that uh, our listeners are very kind. Um,
0: I guess that leads to our next question.
1: What are the key differences between how a, a historian views historical events when compared to an average civilian? Civilian in, civilian
0: quotations. in quotations. As the, <laughs> the uh, uh, listener wrote it, um... So I guess, this is, this is a very personal question, actually, because I think uh, different historians will have it differently. Um, and so Lindsay and I, we might have different perspectives on this. I don't know. Uh, again, we didn't script this.
1: <laughs> no, some scripting. So
0: for me, whenever I hear about a, an event um, recently, a recent event, a, an event in the past, or a, some sort of current uh, event that comes with a lot of baggage, I'm always thinking about the broader trends that those things exist within. Sometimes we can focus on little events and we can look uh our little moments in history or certain figures and not realize they're part of a much bigger story. Jamestown was probably the best example, uh, our episode on that. Um, and so I, whenever I come across some sort of event, I'm, tr- I'm trying to place it in its historical context, whether that's understanding how people thought at the time or what was going on with politics or where the nation was at or whatever.
1: I'd say yes, we definitely ask what were the circumstances surrounding the events and what were the circumstances surrounding those reporting on the events. That's a great point. So um, what, when was the, the source event- written
0: were they eyewitnesses yeah. were they eyewitnesses witnesses but it was written 20 years later uh what was the perspective of the person writing down the narrative that we now have that's that's one of the big things like evaluating the source and not taking it as uh, infallible
1: right because if you are talking about european colonization and you're reading a source written at the time so we call it a primary source um from a person who is trying to get people to move to the Americas, he's going to um, be trying to sell a product Mm -hmm. to, and so he's going to describe the the land in a way that's going to entice people to move there. So that's like, that's, that's what we're talking about. Like what, what is like, where are we getting this report from? Even if it's a news report, or if it's reading a document from 300 years ago, you know, or even
0: like reading who wrote it? Yeah, reading newspaper yeah. articles. I had to read a ton of newspaper oh, yeah. articles for my um, my master's thesis, and had to oh. realize that they're trying to sell newspapers. It doesn't necessarily mean what they're doing is exaggerating um, or completely inaccurate, but it's a fact to consider. Um, and we have to make judgments on their um, accuracy. Um,
1: right. And a lot of times it's reading between the lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so the event is much more significant within its context.
0: So from now, we'll move on to uh, some more specific questions about some of the material we covered. Uh, there is one, uh, one uh, listener wrote in, with several questions uh, for a whole bunch of uh, food for thought. I'll just read through them all, and then, Lindsay, you can start unpacking it. What did Europeans think about tobacco once they understood what it meant to Native Americans? How did Europeans pick up the habit after first being astonished by it, and how did they learn to cultivate and process it? Did some Natives profit from the industry of the production of tobacco And how did the globalization of tobacco change its place within Native American cultures? These are excellent questions. Uh, There's a whole lot there. So this is mostly referencing um, mostly about our Atlantic Trade episode, episode four, though this touches on a bit about um, the colonial environment in episode two as well, which I view episodes two and four as thematically linked. Um, Yes. And so, uh, Lindsay, why don't you unpack that for us? (laughs)
1: Okay, so this listener had quite a few questions related to tobacco, and um, we kind of we we found them all fascinating, and we really appreciate the response. This is exactly part of our um, our goals as presenting this podcast is to create questions like this. Um, and in response, i re- I read an article found in the journal Amer- Environmental History. It's from October of 2004, historian Peter C. Mancall, Tales Tobacco Told in 16th Century Europe. And in that article, he answers quite a, f- a few of these questions. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of to summarize, Mancall um, referenced books printed in the 16th and early 17th centuries to show what Europeans thought about tobacco and how it eventually became a global commodity. Essentially, Europeans were fascinated about all things concerning the Western Hemisphere. European explorers, travelers, and naturalists wrote extensively about the New World, and its fascinating peoples, plants, and animals. Okay, the New World's potential for creating and driving wealth was also immediately acknowledged across Europe. Um, Unlike other commodities like potatoes, corn, and beaver pelts, (laughs) Uh, Tobacco came with cultural baggage. 16th and 17th century writers were conflicted by what to think about tobacco and whether Europeans should have anything to do with it. As far as the accounts show, uh, Europeans learned about tobacco from observing Native Americans. Uh, Mancall doesn't really answer the question of whether or how Natives taught Europeans about their uses, cultivation, and processing of tobacco, but Europeans most certainly wrote about and drew pictures of the plant and its uses, cultivation, and so on. Since Europeans learned a great deal from natives in other areas, I'm going to say it's safe to presume that at least some native groups shared information on tobacco with some Europeans, then they shared that information with other Europeans and so forth. As we noted in many of our episodes in Volume 1, some European peoples were more interested in learning from and interacting with Native peoples than others.
0: I think that's a really important point to point out, is that uh, Native Americans were no more a unified group than Europeans were. um, And once first contact uh, happened, the relationship wasn't necessarily... Stable. In fact, there was a ton of dynamic change in the relationship between different uh, native communities with different European communities over time. Um, so that's one of the really important things to uh, to at least acknowledge with this question: is there can there is perhaps not one answer. There's probably a hundred different answers for how different communities uh, interacted with the plant and then interacted with uh, Europeans who were interested in the plant.
1: Exactly. Um, interpretations of tobacco developed over time, going from being a curious substance that the natives always seem to have with them, usually in a pouch around their necks, or up to a key ingredient in savage quotation or devilish quotation practices to, to being a plant with many civilized quotation uses. <laughs> And, yeah, and that's important because this is how um, it was described. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Those are direct quotes. That's yeah. not us.
1: Right. And you see this over and over again in printed works. And in order for tobacco to cross the cultural divide, as Mankal argues, Europeans had to make it their own, divorce it from the stigma of being used in Native American spiritual practices and place it within European cultural contexts. So, printed books, he argues, is how Europeans were able to make tobacco their own in a process anthropologists call commodity indigenization or commodity fetishism. Essentially, um, they had to Europeans had to create an image of tobacco that was acceptable, and to do that, as, as this historian argues, um, people. Merchants and publishers printed books that told people about the positives of tobacco and how great it is. And these works often reached people before the plant itself itself did. So it's kind of like a back and forth. So Europeans observed Native Americans using tobacco to treat illnesses and skin irritations. They chewed or smoked the leaves and experienced an increase in energy or calmness if they consumed a lot of it. And they used tobacco in healing rituals and as gifts to spirits. That's generally speaking. And Europeans also observed Natives, quote, drinking smoke in great quantities to interact with spirits, receiving revelations and hallucinations. Now it's very possible that Europeans lumped multiple plants that the Native Americans used in rituals under the name tobacco. But at the very least, they witnessed many uses and applications for the plant. The attachment to native rituals caused many Europeans to fear and hate tobacco, but Eventually, enough merchants and other Europeans claimed that tobacco did have medicinal applications and could stimulate a tired person and could sustain a hungry person for some time and was in general a pleasurable substance that it became a global commodity. But people always objected to it, either on the basis of its origins or the soot and smell from the smoke or how it affected a person's body or behavior. King James I hated the stuff. He wrote quite extensively on how much he hated it. And from the very beginning through to today, people found reasons why tobacco was unhealthy for both those who consumed it and those who received the secondhand smoke. So even in the 16th century, people acknowledged secondhand smoke which is kind of interesting um still as history showed tobacco proved to be a resilient crop a combination of market forces and physiological effects that being addiction helped it along so um very interesting very interesting and to answer what roles the natives played in the, in the North American or global tobacco economy and whether commodifying tobacco changed its place in native cultures would take more research and I believe would be very interesting. Um, we will recommend some sources on our website and if the topic gets enough interest, maybe we can do a special episode in the future or at least pre- you know, present a special transcript, but um, yeah, so it's really fascinating, and I would like to hear more thoughts on that if there are any. And thank you to our listener for that question. What do you do? You have anything to add, Will?
0: Uh, no, I guess the other thing to consider there is that uh, tobacco is addictive, and so once uh, Europeans would try it for possibly medicinal reasons. Um, it, they would want to keep trying it and so on. And so I think that's, that's the other thing to consider is unlike potatoes or beaver pelts or whatever else, um, tobacco is addictive. All right, should we go to the next question?
1: Mm, yes. Okay, well, Brian wants to know, Do you subscribe to the theory that Jordan Love should get MVP votes for being the chip on Aaron Rodgers' Rodgers shoulder that he needed to prove to the Packers and the league that he's not giving up being QB1?
0: This is a fantastic question, Brian. I'm glad you brought this up. I'm glad that people actually wrote in with Packer questions. Uh, Short answer, or I, I guess I should give some background. Uh, Aaron Rodgers is the starting quarterback of the Packers. He's been the starting quarterback for like 13 years now or so. Uh, He has won a Super Bowl. He's won a Super Bowl MVP as well as two league MVPs. He has the highest passer rating of any quarterback in NFL history for his career. Um, In this offseason, the Packers drafted his heir apparent, essentially, Jordan Love in the first round. And the, uh, the idea is he'll sit behind Rodgers for a few years and learn from Rodgers, and then the Packers will move on. Um, this is exactly what happened when Rodgers was drafted. He was drafted when the Packers had Brett Favre, and he sat behind Brett Favre for three years before becoming the starting quarterback. Um, so, do I subscribe to the theory that, Jordan, that drafting Jordan Love has made Rodgers play better? Uh, I mean, maybe a tiny bit, but no. No, I don't. Uh, The GM has invested in the defense in the last two years, the O-line and running backs to take the pressure off of Rodgers, which is all helping the offense function better. Um, And also, I would say that the second-year offense with head coach Matt LaFleur is also much better than the first-year offense um, was last year. Uh, so what you're really seeing is Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur totally in sync um, week six, notwithstanding. I don't want to talk about the Tampa Bay game, which is the most recent game as we record this. Uh, no one right in talking about the Tampa Bay game. I don't want to talk about it, but overall, no, uh, no, Rodgers is running LaFleur's offense and LaFleur's offense is helping Rodgers and those two in sync is awesome. Uh, Rogers running Lafleur's offense is just a thing of beauty It's amazing um, I would also say I don't care about the MVP awards Sort of uh, Rogers has two um, It would be great if he got another one before he retires But ultimately I don't care I want a Lombardi trophy I want to bring back the Lombardi trophy to Titletown, Green Bay uh, That's really what I care about um, though it would be cool if, uh, the Packers, uh, had two quarterbacks who won, uh, three MVPs with Brett Favre winning three in the nineties. And then Rogers winning three in his career. That'd be amazing to have two quarterbacks in a row doing that. So that's my, uh, <laughs> that's my long answer to Brian's question about the Packers. Now we're going to move on to another question. Thank you. I don't know if anyone else is interested, but Brian wrote in.
1: I'm going to answer it. Uh, The listener asked and the listener was answered.
0: You talked about tobacco for like 25 minutes. I take three minutes.
1: That's relevant. That's relevant. (laughs) They're
0: both questions we got from fans.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay.
0: Uh, Brian has a second question. He said, would you agree that prior to the Revolutionary War, that the economic modalities of the southern colonies could most aptly be characterized as agrarian pre-capitalist? Lindsay, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, this is a quote from Goodwill Hunting. This is a direct
0: quote from Goodwill uh, Hunting.
1: Uh, yes. And in fact, we were going to use a quote from this scene in our internal revolution episode and we had to cut it due to time constraints but it was relevant since uh, it was speaking on the historian Gordon Wood who is one of the historians we referenced quite a bit for that episode but I'm gonna let you answer the question Will.
0: So yeah, unfortunately, we had the quote in there and we had to, or we had, we referenced the scene and referenced Gordon Wood, um, the scene in the bar when they're arguing about history. Um, but that episode was just too long. And in the final edit, we had to take a whole bunch out to try to make it a manageable size. Um, but I'm sad we lost that. Uh, but essentially, to answer the actual question here uh, of what did the economy of the US look like prior to the war, um, was it mostly an agrarian society or was it participating in this capitalist mercantile uh, system of Atlantic trade we talked about in episode four? Um, and I would actually say, uh, yes, it was mostly agrarian. Um, prior to the war, The um, we could really just say for the whole uh, 1700s, It was much easier for colonists to interact with the Atlantic colony or Atlantic trade than to interact with each other. Like trade within the colonies was very limited um, because the transportation system was very, very weak at the time. Um, And so you kind of had a bunch of separate economies, not one unified uh, market economy for the whole United States Um, that doesn't really develop until, uh, the early, uh, 19th century, uh, after the war of 1812, we call this the market revolution is when these manufactories start developing when there's this interconnected system of trade throughout the United States. Um, but like all revolutions, it has, uh, it's antecedents there. There are roots of it much earlier, but it's not, it didn't really come into its own until the market revolution. Um, And this is actually something we're talking about in volume two. So the caveat I would give to all of this is this is something I'm currently researching and writing about. um, And so my opinion might change uh, as I continue reading and writing on this subject. But what's really interesting is um, this is kind of a debate the founding fathers had after the government was established was what kind of nation are we going to be? Are we going to be, a rural agrarian kind of independent farmer nation, which is kind of what uh, Thomas Jefferson imagined. We're going to be a more mercantile nation with a large national banking system uh, like Alexander Hamilton wanted um, or that John Adams wanted. And so there's actually this big debate going on among the founders and among the really the first decade or two of um, the nation, um, and that we're actually going to trace that debate in episode one of volume two. So th- this question actually leads into some of the things we're going to be talking about. Um, the Founding Fathers having very different visions of what the nation should be. Um, and so we're hopefully going to explore these controversies uh, much more in the future. Is there anything you would add to that, Lindsay?
1: Uh, no, I, I well, we really expand on you know, a lot happens in the antebellum period that I feel is definitely glossed over in a lot of American history courses. And I think that we are going to surprise our listeners quite a bit with the the America that existed in antebellum period. That means pre-Civil War is a lot different than uh, kind of the images that are are left behind, or at least are are more popular, mm-hmm. so like the country really becomes its own in a way it's it's still a, a young country, but um so politics, economy changes, but we as the we size focus, of the nation
0: changes dramatically yeah, both the, geographic and the, the population um
1: right the society, what does that look mm-hmm. like? You know, what is the American culture? A lot of things change. Yeah. So yeah, we we do spend some time, quite some time, uh just talking about those changes. Yeah. Like of an agrarian society
0: and, to a more market economy, a almost completely yeah. rural society to at least a bit more urbanization. Um small by yeah. modern standards, but radical change for the people who are living through it. Um,
1: Right. Right. And we like detail experiences of urbanization in mm-hmm. um, New York City, for example. Yeah. So, yeah, really exciting stuff and stuff that didn't come to my attention until after high school.
0: So yeah, there, it's really reading, nice. this is a this is definitely a case of reading some books and just being blown away by how much was going on in this era that I originally thought was boring purely out of ignorance. I just like, I don't know, there was a revolution, then nothing really happened. And then there's slavery in a war, like a civil war. Um, but right. there is so much happening in this era in terms of like politics. Uh, I already mentioned the size and the population of the nation. Uh, there's, technology Technology, the a completely new economy a new way of working a new type of workforce uh, a national culture for the first time Um, there's improvements in transportation and communication which is a big theme we're going to cover which allow books and authors uh, to make a living from those books and Uh, magazines and newspapers pop up and popular songs. Like there's the development of a popular American culture Um, as well as a number of things uh, that we generally associate with later eras in American history actually have their roots in the antebellum era. Um, Some of the things that come to fore in the progressive era, um, the early 1900s all have their roots from this time period and some weird connections between the 1960s and the 1840s. There's weird parallels there that I think oh, that'll surprise yeah. some people. Um, but it surprised yeah. Gen- me. Uh, and so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Gender roles. Yeah. Gender like that. roles
0: are changed in this t- time period. Um, and so it's a fun era. I'm actually really excited for volume two, just because I'm having a good time researching and writing. And um, I think we have some fun stuff in store. So is there anything else you want to say about volume two?
1: I know that pretty much sums Mm -hmm. it up. Just be ready for it. It, It's going to be a little bit before we get it out because it does take some time to put these things together, but we are um, working diligently.
0: We're going for quality over quantity and uh, speedy episodes. So we'll have it out in 2021. I think we're shooting for the spring, but we don't want to rush episodes and do a poor job. And some of these things just take time.
1: Again, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and you will be the first to know when yeah. an episode's coming out. And if you subscribe to us on any of the streaming platforms, usually when a new episode comes up, um, you get notified. So, yeah, make sure oh, you're subscribed.
0: Well, I, we might do another Q and A episode or two, maybe before. Um,
1: yeah, if we get one good one responses, for sure. Yeah.
0: So if you, if anyone else has questions. Uh, on these topics, on history in general, on the uh, Green Bay Packers, no, on
1: no, Volume 1
0: or 2. Will has answered um,
1: his one question about the Green Bay Packers that he's allowed to answer for Volume 1. but I'm going to let the
0: fans speak. <laughs> if listeners want to know, I'm going to talk about it. Uh, uh, but yeah, if, if people have questions, please write in. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, uh, American History Remix. Um, write into our email account, American History Remix at Gmail. Uh, check out our website. There are all sorts of books um, that we recommend people read. You can read the scripts um, and look at the sources there. There's a lot to keep people engaged until volume two.
1: Um, on our website, you can also learn a little bit more about us. We do have a little bio page there, which includes our uh, marketing consultant, Ali Gavett. So hi, Allie. Hey, Ali.
0: She's probably listening. So that is it for our first Q and a episode. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, Lindsay, do you anything you want to say to the audience before we're done?
1: Uh, just thank you for being so supportive while we put the podcast together. And so, um, kind, uh, about our volume one releases and please continue to listen, subscribe, rate, review, um, and check us out on social media if that's what you're into. All
0: right. Thanks everybody. Bye.
1: Thanks. Bye.